What's in the box? Pain. I know you. One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. In this episode of Out of the Frame, we interview Brian Connor, a VFX supervisor for DNEG on the newly released Dune. Brian is a veteran in the VFX industry, cutting his teeth at Industrial Light and Magic in San Francisco before moving to Singapore to establish an ILM division there. Since then, he's worked with Scanline VFX, Rodeo FX, Digital Domain, and is now supervising at DNEG. Along the way, he's been a pivotal part of many of the blockbusters that have graced the screen over the last two decades. Welcome, Brian, and it's great to finally catch up with you after all these years. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to talk to you again, and I'm glad I can be here to share some of the information of the movie. It's funny, I have worked with Denis Villeneuve, who is, I think, just a very, very interesting director in that he's kind of at the top of his craft, in my opinion. I got to say, June really, to me, the execution was almost flawless. I'm sure I could find some things that were wrong, but I didn't see them. I mean, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at not getting lost in the technique of the visual effects. I'm usually pretty good at just watching story, but that movie in particular, I, I just really got engrossed in. So awesome job. Now, Tell me a little bit about what DNEG did, how you guys broke out the work and that kind of thing. Well, there was the two main locations. So there's DNEG Vancouver, which is where I worked and lived. I was actually asked by Paul Lambert, who's the visual effects supervisor overall. And some of you might know him because he, he has the one-two Oscar punch that he won. <laughs> for First Man, and I think it was Blade Runner as well. So I worked with him on one of the first projects at DNEG Vancouver when we first started that. So I think because him and I, blood, sweat, and tears, despite all of the trials and tribulations that having or working at a new facility brings with 837 shots that we had in that film, I think we just had a great relationship and and we just basically were there he would be asleep and i would still be chasing up shots because he's my boss <laughs> so that's why he asked me to come to montreal and head up the work for dune and of course there's no way i could say no to that <laughs> for obvious reasons because i also read the book when i was a kid i used to just read a lot of sci-fi fantasy collections really and so I said yes, of course, and moved out. And I haven't actually moved back. I just stayed in <laughs> Montreal. And so, yeah, I've been here ever since. But that's how I kind of got into it with Paul. And then once I got here, then I, as soon as I got here, got my apartment, went out to Budapest and, and joined everybody on the massive stages, which were just, I, I just, I've never seen anything like it, you know. One of the things that, that I'll be talking about really is just, the reason why I think things look believable is because a lot of it is built. Yeah. They, right. they had a, a budget to where Denis and Patrice and their beautiful concepts that they've got from some of the best people all over the world, they knew exactly what they wanted and they built it. 
And they literally did the same with visual effects. They say, we want you to build this, but in CG, but it has to look as good as this concept painting, which they looked amazing. I mean, just the attention to detail. There's, there's going to be a book, coffee table book that comes out uh, that you can purchase that I will as well. In fact, I think they have the $600 version that's signed by Patrice and Denis if, if you have that extra cash to spend. <laughs> but it's all grounded in, in, in reality. And it, oftentimes it was doing set extensions for a lot of the interior work. But they captured, they built every craft, so the ornithopters, just everything that you could possibly think of, except obviously the spice harvester. They did, they built just a, the track because it's so huge wow. uh, and in part of the hole. But like uh, whenever they could, they always had something practical. And that includes the guys in SFX that were always whipping up sand in, in everybody's faces, <laughs> you know, because it's a movie about the spice, obviously. Yeah. And like if we had to do an ornithopter landing, like on the cliff, we did that in Montreal, the one that they always show in the in the trailers, they landed a helicopter first. And we, we studied that kind of role that all of the particulate does. And we didn't use it, but as an element, because we couldn't, if we could, we always used stuff that was real practical effects on set and we would augment it where we had to and we'd learn and 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 just watch what that did and use it as reference and paul was very very good at just kind of just say brian just just match that just just do that and i will approve it so when it came to like the sandstorm that we we also did in, in montreal the huge sandstorms like we've seen those in the sahara desert in africa and even there's footage that I found of, of sandstorms and just devouring the entire city of Denver. Like it's, they're massive and what they look like from the outside and what they look like from the inside and what they look like from the top are all kind of completely different things. And that's how we treated that sequence of when Paul and Jessica are in their ornithopters being chased by the Harkonnens and all of that kind of that look uh, some of it's almost from National Geographic in that, like, that was our, that, that, yeah, was, that was reality, our guide. They don't really move that much from the outside. They're huge. So getting that sense of scale and basically having just a, a lot of reference of real stuff, that was always Paul's kind of edict that he was always either finding himself, like, for example, when when the... On, on Kaladin planets, and sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, That's but right. uh, on Kaladin planet where the Atreides, the ship, uh, the flagship is coming out of the water and what that looks like and I'm displacing billions of you know particles in our simulations and you have the ocean surface and then you have the water coming off of it and all of that took a lot of time to do, but it was made, it looked right in my opinion because Paul made us put a six-foot man in a boat next to it <laughs> so that when our effects artists, who were amazing, would work on that shot, you could always tell when, like, okay, that piece of spray is tall as a building because I can see it relative to this six-foot man. So always keeping mm-hmm. things grounded in, in reality was, like, the edict and the key, I think, to to the look of everything that we did on that show. Actually, I got a question on the ornithopter crash. 
we you went down to one wing. <laughs> I'm, yeah. curious, I'm curious, how did you guys figure out how the plane should behave with one wing missing? Well, obviously, we we had done some previs. So when things like that, we would choke Denis and, and he would react. And, and it's like sometimes you make something that is because that's what the director wants. Right. And it's a stylistic kind of approach because... I think if you lose a wing, then you're going to go down pretty quickly and, and, you, and you're going to tumble because you have one wing and not another kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So that was just kind of a stylistic choice that got us to the ground, really. Because I imagine yeah. a lot of YouTube references of one wing planes flying. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it was less of a plane. It was more like a dragonfly, you know? Right. That's uh, true. And, and, and I'm not saying it was like a... What is it? What do they say? A, a one-legged man in a, a butt kicking contest? I don't know. But, if you're allowed to say that anymore, but sure. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to just like obviously it just doesn't yeah. work well. Just have one, and you're trying to fly. No, I was impressed. It it didn't pull me out. It was plausible. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was good. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So let's jump in and talk about. The sand, because obviously that's a huge part. This whole planet's a desert planet. And I got to say that I was really impressed. Usually when I see sand, visual effects, CG sand, it, it kind of has that Houdini look. Not Nothing against Houdini because it's an amazing app, but people have used like the vellum solver or some solver, and it kind of has a, a certain look to it. Whereas this felt incredibly organic. And I think it also had that, feeling of like ocean waves, especially when the worm was kind of surfing past, but it didn't take away from the fact that it was sand. It still felt plausible like sand. So talk about the process a little bit, if you can, of how you guys came about getting that working. Well, the good thing is we're talking about is like we went to Jordan and in Jordan, obviously there's there's just the most amazing sandscapes that you can now see in, in many different movies, actually. And so we shot we shot real sand dunes and a lot of photography from helicopters. And of course, again, we had uh, some some larger U.S. military helicopters too that were almost the same size. Blackhawk is almost the same size as a as a, a ornithopter. So we would basically shoot that, and it would do the performance. And we'd have it land. And then essentially, as my partner in crime likes to say, you copy and paste in another, <laughs> a, a different vehicle into right. the shop. And as they say, Bob's your uncle. Like you, oh. when, you ha- when you can keep as much of the real stuff as possible and then learn from what it's doing and put it back on top, like you're, you're just so winning uh, all the time. So we tried to do that to replicate the desert, right? We modeled it and, and based it on real desert. When, and some of them have these like, interesting kind of tips at the top that it's like I, I hadn't seen before. But like the main thing is just scale and, and size. And so when you're trying to sell the scale of these massive volumes and the, the massive size of the sandworms and how much they displace the surface and below it and all of that kind of stuff, it's really they had to come up with a special system to kind of just accommodate that kind of simulation of, of sand effects. And then, and then there was the rendering of it, which is not an easy task to, to even, even if you have as many processors as we do. And of course, as anybody who's worked with big 
Houdini simulations, you'll know that like, okay, it, that takes up a lot of disk space to, to store yeah. them. So yeah, it's just, again, just watching. There wasn't a lot of footage where you see displaced sand. Obviously we shot a lot of some of the sand stuff when you see our characters interacting when the worms coming and we had these huge, huge shakers. They build them actually for people who you think you can lose weight just by standing on these oh, things, yeah. <laughs> shake, you, shake you around. We made a super large one they constructed and buried it under the sand and then would play with the frequency to get that right look of shock waves from the sandworm moving wow. through the sand. And we found that when you have a specific frequency, then people start to sink. <laughs> so <laughs> so when, when, you, when you see those scenes, they're actually, it's just real sand t- tuned to a specific frequency that it starts to sink. Cool. So a lot of that stuff, basically the characters doing it, we shot lots of, and lots of reference. We had the guys from our effects team on set that would help us really capture things in camera as much as possible. And then obviously it's a matter of extending it in a, in a way that is believable. But luckily for us, and I'm glad and I hope to work on part two, but we didn't really have a lot of worm shots. They were in there. Yeah. throughout the movie but in general it's kind of denis was kind of treating it more like a homage to jaws right it's like da, da. it's like you see the sand sign you see it's coming you see it di- displacing a lot of sand and when they encounter it duke leto and paul when they go to where you know they're doing they're mining the spice uh, and then there's obviously you know the vibration causes the sandworms to come and and pounce and then it ends up swallowing <laughs> the whole vehicle, the spice freighter or the harvester. All, all of that, it's not that many shots, really, if you look at the yeah, whole it's true. over the movie. And, and I think, really, they're saving a lot of that for the second part, which right. now that we kind of have an approach to it, obviously, like anything else, the first one's the hard one and figuring it out is the hard one. But the next time it comes along, you have some efficiencies that you can use to then leverage versus making it up. Yeah, I got to say, in in general, it's pretty impressive that the size of the budget for half a movie, right, for half a story. I mean, without the studios committing to the second movie right away. Obviously, I think COVID was a factor there. If COVID hadn't shown up, this thing probably would just explode at the box office and it was pretty safe. Oh, bet. yes, I but, think so. Um, which is a shame, apart from the fact that my daughter insisted we get HBO Max so she could watch it again at home. <laughs> I would have been very disappointed if we'd seen it on HBO and not at the cinema because it's just that epic of a movie. It really is kind of a little bit of injustice to watch it on a small screen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the picture, but it's the sound. Oh, yeah. The sound was incredible. That was was meticulously crafted. And one thing that probably was a silver lining of the pandemic, which, by the way, we finished the movie the last, I don't know, I want to say 25% when we were almost at the end. We all had to go home and and we all had to grab our monitors and anything that we (laughs) carry from the office, literally... And just go home and then work from home. Like it it was just that sudden. So it's a testament to everybody that worked on it that we were able to get through that 
massive change of not being in dailies and talking as a group and, and looking at shots together to just being at home alone where I was running my sessions uh, and I didn't have editorial anymore and all, all of these things that you take for granted, of course, until you're having to supervise and I'm sure the artists working from home. So there's a lot of bumps and things that you have to work out along the way that we were still able to deliver. Let's talk about the the practical sets, because that's obviously one of the real hallmarks here is that a lot of this stuff really was built, right? A lot of it is in camera with SFX off screen, adding the blowing sand and wind for the actors and things to right. you know, make them look cinematic. I mean, we did have obviously set extensions to do and all of Eric Keane, the city itself was a massive undertaking that was a huge amount of detail that you could literally fly around that and put a camera anywhere you wanted. And that the attention to detail, even in the bevel work and, and the sand that would collect naturally if it was blowing for real, all of that kind of stuff was, was simulated. And then once it, it rested, that's where it would go and we just freeze it there. But in the introduction, when we go from the spaceport to Arakeen and we fly over the city, that was all obviously computer graphics. And that undertaking was just exhaustively detailed because, again, wow. we, we kept referencing these amazing concepts that Denis and Paul would point to and, and we would match to, to the point where you could literally A, B between the concept and then our finished 3D textured lit <laughs> effects yeah. added model and environment and, and of course adding atmospherics and whatnot. But, you know, I'm going to say as a, as a visual effects artist, I had a hard time picking where the practical left off and the, the CG started. I think that's one of the most impressive things of the whole venture. Uh, to well, me. that is, you know, obviously a testament to Denis and the production designer. And of course my boss, Paul Lambert, I tell you, he is very good at, getting things built for real so that we have just enough to match into yeah. to tell us exactly. Of course, we have all of the data and of, of where the lights were and what lens were used. And, all and I everything. imagine all the LIDAR you need from the set, right, as well? Yeah, we exactly that. We, we took LIDAR profusely, probably <laughs> too much. So we have it in case we need to build sets or add an extra scene or yeah. make another movie. We have all of that that data, but because we built it and we knew where the lights were and the quality of the light, and we had a lot of just information, we had something to match into, not, not flawlessly, of course, it's, ne it's never perfect, but as close as you can get in the time that you have. And we actually finished the movie in time for a December release of last year, yeah, as we were supposed to. And because of COVID, I think, most people know it was pushed and then pushed again. Did anything get played with in the interim or did it just sit on the shelf? Well, I think they had some reshoots and they added a couple scenes. So okay. just to kind of help flush out the story. And then I think Denise spent a lot of time with the sound, which again is why to see it theatrically, he spent a lot of time in just that feeling and the almost uh, imperceptible aura and the atmosphere of what that place feels like playing with all the latest, greatest things that you can do with sound these days, which is why if you have it at home, I mean, I spend the money for a good quality television and 
surround sound. But even that being said, it's not the same because yeah. you're on your couch and you can check your phone and you can go, you know, get something to eat. And then it's like, it's and, just and you probably back. don't have 30 to 40 speakers surrounding your room. Correct. Everything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly that. You know, yeah, not, I, I do have subwoofers, but no, not, not like they have in, in a, in a nice, especially an IMAX theater. Everything was shot for IMAX. We rendered everything that way as well. So if you see it, two, three, five, you're kind of missing out on some of the fun top and bottom because hmm. it's more of a, IMAX is more of almost a square format. So you, there's a lot more imagery for those of you who want to see it again. I, I definitely That's recommend the IMAX version. So the two, three, five was a crop of that rather than the other way around, right? So Correct. Oh. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more fun to be had. And we actually had to do some shots we had that they wanted the resolution of IMAX. So we had to make these mega frames. And so basically we had to add on either side to make a two, three, five crop. So we had to have a render even larger just so that we weren't just kind of chopping it out of a IMAX frame, a two, three, five out of an IMAX frame. Let's jump back and talk me through some of the sets and just how big some of them were. We almost took over an entire studio in Budapest, Rigo. It's so massive. And yet, when I first arrived there, Paul took me on a tour and we went from one super massive stage to the next. And I was just, I couldn't believe that they they built all of everything that you see in, in the interior shots. It was so overwhelming, but I could see how, as an actor, you don't really have to try to pretend to immerse yourself in an environment if it's completely all around you. I think one of the things that just working against a blue screen, I think it's, and justifiably so, not very easy to emote and and to pretend that you're in this fantastical world where it hasn't even been figured out yet. And so you're just kind of using your imagination. But I think there's something to be said with having – real sets that you can touch and interact with and just immerse yourself in. So yeah, there was just so many of them. I think the biggest thing though, really was the back lot and that was the spaceport and that space. I don't even know what the square meter square feet uh, of it is. I can just say it's the biggest thing I've ever seen (laughs) that they built for the movie where on the sides was probably 20, 30 foot wall, but the walls all around it were kind of angled so that they would catch sun. And everything was painted in sand color. And actually, one of the things that came up with was the process of using not a blue screen, but what we called the sand screen. So we have these 40 buys on a Manitou that would, that would move these massive sand screens into place where we needed them if we had some close-up footage or coverage that we needed to do. And basically, one of the interesting things that I found was like, no one really cared when I would ask to move the sand screen around like they would a blue screen. I think there's a lot of directors and actors, like as soon as they see a blue screen, they're just like annoyed, you know? And, And to be fair, they're quite distracting if you're trying to make a movie and you're trying to pretend that you're somewhere else where... I found that when you have a sand screen and you ask to put four in a row or even stack them, they're like, okay, 
how long is it going to take? I'm like, 15 minutes, even though it might take more. But, but then they're like, okay, fine. And it was like, it, it just, people, it, it just melts into the rest of the ground and to what's going on. You just don't even notice that it's there, really. It's quite amazing in terms of like how people treat you uh, as a visual effects professional and how people you know, and the craft, oftentimes they're like, this is so much better than a blue screen. Like people just... They thought that was the bee's knees because it turns out that when you pull a key, it doesn't have to be blue. It doesn't have to be green. It doesn't have to be red. It can be whatever kind of solid color that works best for the separation between the background and the foreground, as I know you've written in many, many books, Damien. <laughs> <laughs> so ours was sandscreen color, and all you would have to do is just invert the image, and automatically the sandscreen would turn to blue, and you have mm-hmm. your edges and you do your extraction, and yes, the density of it wasn't perfect for the core, but I really, we don't care about that as much because we can order Roto right. now pretty easily, right? Yeah. But what we can't do is is Roto hair and all of this yeah. little wonderful subtle detail that you have in edges. So that's where the sandscreen and that technique really... That's really, really interesting. So you basically it was an inverted blue to some degree, and then... You obviously get the right kind of spill, right? Yeah, correct. No spill, blue spill yeah. that we have to extract that kind of, if someone does it too hard uh, or has their sledgehammer out instead of their scalpel, then, then you can get some things that are, look odd and you don't know why, especially in reflections and things. So this, we were able to keep everything. And, and that's another reason I think why our foreground blended into our background so well is because we're not messing with it. Right. One of the big problems with sci-fi in general is because the scenes are so abstract, if it Mm -hmm. is all blue screen or green screen, it's often very hard for the artist to really know where to put things like lighting. I always find that people like way overdo things like light wrap and everyone everyone looks like they're glowing in sci-fi movies. Like this somehow there's a supernova happening behind them or something. And this thing, because you had so much practical and everything else, it, it really, it didn't suffer from those things. You, you, there wasn't a moment where I thought, wow, that person's against a blue screen, you know? Right. So that was pretty awesome. No, I mean, the thing is, is like the teams that we had on just all, everywhere, our team in Vancouver, the team in Montreal, the team in Mumbai, like everybody really put their heart and soul into this movie and really cared. And like when we're asking to get, no, these edges are not there. These edges are not there. They were like, okay, like I'll keep doing it until you're happy. And I don't care because I want it to look good as well. Like I think across the board, everybody was just so very much happy to be on the production and to contribute to what is going to be a difficult task. You know, it's like, how do you remake a movie and have it be different and have it look better than what was previously done. You're always up against an iconic novel and piece of work that was done before. So you're always having to make sure that you're leveling up and, and adding to what was done before. So that, yeah, it was a really enjoyable process. So, so what, what was your favorite sequence to work on? Well, I mean, for me, I know it sounds a bit underwhelming, but that whole, the Atreides arrival, when the, the gates open up and we see the control tower in the background and this 
big, huge, desolate place with the sand always blowing. And as they're walking through, you have these massive ships with all of the crowds and CG crowds and dust and and all of that kind of pomp and circumstance until they finally go and, and they check out the sand containers in that area. And there's also the sand harvesters, how they move things around and where they're working on them and trying to make them work. All of those locations, all in one, it was just such a difficult but yet wonderful establishing of this world that I think is very, very important in terms of setting the tone of what the movie is going to be like and setting a, a sense of realism it's not easy to do that in a big desolate space, it turns out. You know, there's a lot right. of extra gack and things that you have to build and put in there and, and, and stuff on the ground and, and just everywhere you can possibly think. So, you know, and you just, kind of have a fairly just, limited color palette, I guess, right? To really make things stand yeah, out. Yeah, exactly that. You have to, it's any kind of subtle details and textures, you see them right away. So you have to use them very precisely and, and, and exactly. But yeah, everything to do with that whole Atreides arrival and establishing this sheer scale and the scope of it, which is not easy to do. Right. It, it takes some time to do. And then, of course, Duncan Idaho landing and all that whole scene. is It's just really nice. It came together very, very nicely. And I'm very proud of that work and, and that we did particularly of course, that, that's all this, a lot of the stuff that we did in Montreal. And then we gave all of this carefully crafted stuff. And then our friends in Vancouver up it, for lack of a better word. <laughs> <laughs> Was all the destruction CG or were there some practical? Yeah, no, absolutely practical. In fact, uh, early in the show, our SFX guys, Gerd and, and, and his team, they blew up a lot of things and we shot them and then we analyzed them and we, we copied them exactly right. in effects <laughs> to, down to the pixel. So we had those available and ready to augment and place where needed. But like I was saying before, Denis and the whole team, they like doing things for real. So, I mean, they blew a lot of stuff up, believe me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> set things really on fire and just, it was, uh, yeah, there was just a lot of special effects in there as well to really help us marry in everything that we were adding to the scene. Very cool. So you did the departure from Caladan, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, t- tell me about the just the water effects and getting all that working, because that was a lot. Oh, I mean, yes, the flagship yeah. rising out, that took a while. I mean, those kind of shots, they're going to take a while. There's going to be some R&D it's a slow burn shot. You budget it and you schedule it so that it's running in the background off to the side for a lot of the show. And and that's what we did because you have to give it the love that it deserves if you want something like that big to look good. And again, as I mentioned, just having the right scale and examples. And one of the examples Paul found was that because of all the global warming that's going on, we have chunks, massive super massive chunks of icebergs breaking off the main ice sheets. And sometimes they roll and some of them are as big as the Eiffel Tower, if not larger. And so they're rolling as they break off. The top is going down, the bottom is coming up and all of the water that it displaces and how it cascades off of the top and the sides. Like we studied that ad nauseum just to make sure that 
we had that scale right because it's so hard to get that right. The first ones out of the gate are, are pretty fast, but then once you start getting into the, the minutia, um, yeah, it just takes time. It just takes time to do. And luckily on this show, we had the time we needed to make it look great and not wow. just good. That's awesome. But then the Bene Gesserit, that whole yeah. theme with their ship that we built as well, there was this partial set piece and they had tons and tons of, of atmospherics and stuff going on. But we had it when it didn't have atmospherics and we shot all sorts of reference and we knew where the lights were. And, and then we basically added it to it with our effects team. Again, comes very much in hand, exactly replicate what was going on set so that the transitions between what's a set piece with practical elements and atmospherics, we can then put our stuff in and then rain and then a bunch of things and then the ground as well. And then anything moving parts, obviously, is, is us. And then, of course, when it's super dark, you're working a stop or two up anyway. So you can make sure all of the details are, are there. And then if you're watching it on grandma's TV, nothing pops, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a great blend of visual effects and, and special effects, I think, as well. I, we definitely couldn't do it without them because, if anything, they give us the best reference you can have. Right. Did you guys have many prosthetic effects or any kind of beauty work to do on this show? No, not really. It was all, it's mostly prosthetics, yeah. although there were a few things that we've added. We had to take out or add here and there as usual. Obviously, we had the personal force fields that they could turn on and off. And right. coming up with that effect, that again, too, was one, a mostly kind of a comp gag where you use uh, before and after frames and you blend them together in an interesting way to achieve that kind of force field look. And then the color was not there originally. It used to be a lot more subtle, the, the version that we had, but then it was decided that people couldn't really see them as well, especially in fights. And so then it became like, okay, when you strike something, it's going to be blue. But if you strike something slowly and drill in like right. with a, a knife or something, then it's going to start to turn red and then you'll be able to penetrate that personal shield. Right. And we use that same kind of language to add to the attack on the spaceport and Arakeen. Yeah, you know, no, that definitely thing. helped sell the story and the flow of it. Yeah, it was cool. And certainly more subtle than the 1984 version. <laughs> oh yeah. You're always, I'm sure, I'm sure. Somebody 10 years from now or, or 20 years from now will be laughing at us as because we did it manually. Where Well, you know, back then that was like cutting edge CG, right? I mean, it was like, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and of course people were, were wowed uh, by that as well. They had never seen something like that. Yeah, there's been a lot of negativity about that first June. I personally, maybe it's because I was a teenager at the time. I didn't mind it. Of course, that's the thing, right? It's subjective. And I grew up at the same time as well. I've seen it multiple times, including back when we had the DVDs and we watched the extra footage and we heard the director commentary, all of that, how they shot that and built all of those models yeah. and miniatures and bigatures, uh, if you will, because they were huge, some of the ships and how they would lens it and they get it all in frame and you know, just with visual old school optical tricks, um, it, it was quite impressive feats, and, yeah. and you know, for the time, even the worms, like they didn't think those were going to work. But yet, when you slowed it way down, and 
(laughs) you put it in context, it kind of works. So you do the best you have with what you have at the time, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a feat. Uh, Maybe the biggest criticism is just trying to squeeze that book into one movie. And I think it was a good choice. I'm bummed that I have to wait a couple of years, but it was a good choice to split it. Yeah. I agree one wholeheartedly because I couldn't imagine trying to fit in the whole book again into two and a half hours, three hours. Like yeah. one of my favorite things about the movie, actually, when I saw it with all of my uh, peers, we had a DNEG screening and I, I was so surprised when I, the last scene came up. I was like, oh, my God, I know this scene and this is at the end. And like, we're done. Yeah. I, I was one of the first times where two and a half hours in, I was like, wait a minute, like, where did the time go? And yeah, of course, yeah, that's, to me, that's like, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're just completely immersed in the story and, and the, the visuals, and then it's done. And it's like, wow, I want to see the next one. So I'm very glad that a lot of people had that same reaction. And hopefully I'll be working on the next one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's officially greenlit now, right? So yes, that's good. That's, we just have to wait. So that's all good. So tell me a little bit about you guys have like like pretty much every big studio, even small studio, you guys actually have an outfit in Mumbai, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we have Chennai. Of course, there's London. And I think we're opening up a new one actually in Toronto. So they're always expanding. And yeah, when we work with our team in Mumbai, I think the hardest thing really is just the time difference. The, the rest of it, like we can figure out in terms of like bringing people up to speed and sharing the the knowledge and and the things that we've learned, and and that just takes just like anything else, you get out what you put into it, which is why I always make sure that when we were working with Vancouver as well, it's the same thing. We're always trying to over communicate, and if anything starts to go sideways, I'm just like, let's just get on a call and let's, let's just talk and, and yeah. you can get each other and have a conversation, you know? And so how does the work break out? How do you tend to share shots and that kind of thing between the different locations? Well, we, we try to do it by sequence if possible, because yep. there's kind of clear delineations between the different sequences. Sometimes it is location or environment based as well. So some, if, if we have something at the, Hangar Cavern, where Paul and Jessica are running away from the Sadakur and Kine's house, and they get in the older ornithopter. It's, okay. it's not the same as, as the rest. It was like three different kinds. Right. Uh, but they get in that, and they take off, and, and then that's when they hide in the dust storm, if you will, yeah. uh, or the sandstorm. But it it's just kind of depends on what makes sense, I think, is, again, usually sequence-based. But there's always crossover, and in terms of assets, we're always sharing those uh, amongst each other and, and making improvements and things and changing things to what benefits or what we need for the shots. I want to switch gears a little bit and just talk more about the VFX industry as a whole, because obviously you've been in the thick of it. Uh, you started out, kind of made a name for yourself at ILM, and then moved on. I think you went from there to ILM Singapore, right, to help start That's right. outfit. Yeah. And then you yeah. obviously branched out. But can you tell me a little bit about how you made your career jumps from different locations? Because you really have been all over the globe. Yeah, it was kind of back in the day when I was at ILM. Everybody to my left was as good 
or better than me and everybody to my right was as good as better than me. So why do I deserve a promotion? Why do I get to be a lead or a comp soup? You know, I, I went from 3D to 2D mostly because I, I found you can fix all of my 3D mistakes and errors <laughs> and rendering there and make it look better too. So, and then I just kind of didn't go back, but to go up in a company when, when you have so many great people, so many talented people that in order to move up, you have to work harder and sacrifice sometimes and move to a different location. So that's what I decided to do with my buddy, Nigel. And we went there, it was just him and I, and and him and I, and it was a production team, made something from nothing, which was like probably one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. But anything that's difficult in life, you learn a lot more from than the easy things I find. Like same thing with people, like the people that have really given me a hard time in my life. I've actually tried to take something out of it that I can learn from because a lot of times with any situation, it takes two to tango. And that's why now when I go into a situation where I'm on set and I have the showrunners and I have maybe a line producer that's yelling and a lot and, and people that just apparently don't like me because I'm visual effects, maybe <laughs> if I'm wielding a, blue, wielding a blue screen, they're just like, oh, you know. As a VFX supervisor, we are profoundly despised. It's because you're the one holding up the expensive actors, moving blue screens around, doing all the annoying things when the camera up already thinks they have the shot, right? It's not a real popular job on set when it comes down to it. It's not, but what I was getting to is like, <laughs> I, I go into every situation and I just assume I don't have all the information because in reality, I, I don't, right. like no one does. And so as long as you kind of try to be compassionate, know that yeah. they're angry, but they're coming from, maybe they didn't get any sleep, uh, maybe... <laughs> some personal issues that I don't know about. That's why they're cranky, yeah. but usually they're actually okay. So I, I try to just basically give people Benefit some space yeah. and, and I take things with a grain of salt and not personally, because I know I can win them over with some good dad jokes and maybe a drink or two, you know? Yeah, I think that's um, wisdom. That's one of the biggest problems I think in general is if anyone comes into a set with an ego, it, it just doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't go over well. Unless you're the director and you've got five major films behind you, then you're allowed to have the ego, and that's just the way, way it is. But but for the yeah. rest of us, having an ego really does not extend your career. Well, and maybe you've earned it, and so therefore it's like, okay, it, it's never easy initially for anybody, I don't think, very rarely anyway. So you have to just kind of pay your dues and work through it and it's, don't expect it to be kind of spoon-fed or someone's just going to plop it on your lap. You always have to chase it, what you want. I think deciding that you want to do something, sometimes if someone else, they see you down there and like, hey, why don't you come on up here? The view is much nicer. Yeah. Or, you know, once in a while, you'll get a helping hand. I remember when you and I were working on the Encyclopedia of Visual Effects to bring up the past. <laughs> I really wrote on your shoulders on that one, and you did all the heavy lifting, and I was there for the moral support and coming along for the ride but you really took it and, and it kind of taught me that i need to do that myself when i work on projects by myself when you don't have that support that you have say at ilm that you take for granted once you go out and represent visual effects on set 
you have to kind of be very mindful of the different personalities that are in front of you and be very strategic and careful on how you, you talk to those people and treat the people and try to ingratiate yourself into the group. And that just takes time because no one's going to like anybody off the bat. doesn't matter who you are. Really. On the other hand, you also have a responsibility to retake the shot. If something went wrong and you know that it's not going to work in post, I mean, that's one of the big problems, isn't it, right? Because we can fix it in post, but you've got a way. Is it worth making these guys reshoot? That's right. That is where you have to think before you talk about the ramifications because you can be certain that the line producer is going to be like, wait a minute, hold on, what what, what, is, what does Brian want? What, what did he say? Uh, what, 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 Brian, why do you need this? And I'm like, well... I need this because if I don't have that, then I have to do this, this, and that, and this in post. And he's like, well, okay, well, that, that's fine. I'm like, yeah, but then you multiply that times 50 shots, and I'm thinking it's going to be about 1 million, 1.1. And then he's like, oh, okay, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> and then once you put it in financial terms that a line producer can understand, he also understands time. He's like, okay, okay, you know what? That makes sense. Go ahead. It's always a... A negotiation on set yeah. and, and, and life, really. <laughs> and, and there's a big problem in the film industry. I, I don't think this has changed too much, but the budgets are quite distinct, right? So sometimes in the production mindset, it's like, well, that's not my budget. You're blowing my budget right now by holding this thing up. Even though, hey, we can burn 100 grand here on the set or we could burn 3 million in post. Which one do you want to do? And often it's like, Let's burn three million bucks because that's not my three million. You know. Well, the thing is, is that at the end of principal photography, most of the crew goes to the four winds. They go on to another show, and they're scattered all over the place, and so they don't really care as much about the ramifications on like it's adding to the overall budget versus just their piece of it. Yeah. So making them understand and trying to appeal to the powers that be and knowing who the players are is very important <laughs> when you're on set so that you can help manage those relationships and the people so that you can go to them when you need to. And making those relationships and building that trust is paramount to you know that, that kind of success. Well, I want to thank you, Brian. It was an awesome movie. Do not watch it on HBO Max. Sorry, HBO. You have to get seen on IMAX now because I didn't realize how much was getting cropped out, really. But yeah, go see to the theaters. Make sure they have a good Dolby Atmos surround sound system. And thank you so much, Brian, for talking and just filling in a little bit on uh, what went down. Oh, my pleasure, Damien. It's, it's, it's really great to talk to you again. And I'm sorry it took so long, but <laughs> I'm glad that it was this and I can contribute to your audience as well. That's great. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too.